Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, all you economic aficionados. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Economic Rockstar Podcast and touching that play button on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. The podcast is now available on Spotify. So tell your friends, your colleagues, or that person you see every day going to work or to college, but were too nervous or shy to talk to them. Why not start a conversation with what you're listening to? And if they're not into economics, well, this episode might be a good way for them to transition into this discipline and learn a little bit more because we have something different this week. I speak with Sarah Squire, who has a PhD in English from the University of Chicago. And in this episode, we talk about how we can use literature to help us understand much more about economics or the economics discipline or even some of the concepts that we come across and how they're relived and played out in Shakespearean plays, novels like Emma or Hard Times, or even in comics or children's books like Dr. Seuss. If you've been following the podcast from the beginning or are new to this podcast and have just recently found it and you like what you hear, why not check out the Patreon page to support the show for as little as $1 a month. This just helps to keep the show on the road. And if you don't have that, it doesn't matter. Just keep listening, spread the word, leave a positive feedback and review on iTunes. It just helps get the show noticed a bit more. And that on its own right is enough for me. This podcast, after all, is a free download and you can check out the back catalogue of all episodes on economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts or again on any of those podcast players. Enjoy the show, keep listening, listen back on other episodes and spread the word. And may I present you with Sarah Squire. When I would talk to economists about literature, a lot of them either hadn't read the, the works that I was interested in talking about or they would have a tendency to dismiss out of hand the idea that literature could have anything valuable to contribute to economic thinking. We are quite confident that Adam Smith, who you will remember taught Shakespeare and lectured on Shakespeare, Adam Smith got the phrase the invisible hand from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Sarah Squire join me today. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Sarah Squire is a senior fellow at Liberty Fund, a nonprofit educational foundation and a co-author of the college writing textbook, Writing with a Thesis, which is in its 12th edition. Sarah has published a range of academic articles on subjects from Shakespeare to zombies and a broken window fallacy and her work has appeared in journals as varied as Literature and Medicine, the George Herbert Journal, and the Journal of Economic Behaviour and Organisation. Sarah writes a regular column for the Freeman Online, and blogs for the Fraser Institute and Bleeding Heart Libertarians. Sarah's work on literature and economics has also appeared in Newsweek, the Freeman, and in Cato Unbound, and she is an occasional lecturer for IHS. SFL and other organizations, which I'll ask Sarah what they represent, that abbreviation represents. Her poetry has appeared among other places in Standpoint, The New Criterion and The Vocabulary Review. Sarah graduated with honors in English from Wesleyan University and earned an MA and PhD in English from the University of Chicago. Since it's on my mind here, IHS and SFL, I should have done my homework. 
those organizations are for? Yes, uh, IHS is the Institute for Humane Studies, which is an American, primarily American organization uh, that works with undergraduates who are interested in the humanities, in civil society, in free markets, in free minds. They do a lot of conferences and offer a lot of programming, as well as support for students in undergraduate and in graduate work. So if you are listening and you are a student and you don't know about the Institute for Humane Studies, you should look them up immediately. They're a great organization. SFL is Students for Liberty. Again, another student organization. They began about five years ago, I think, as an umbrella organization designed to connect a lot of smaller student organizations that shared interests in free markets in liberty and in political policies that would encourage liberty. They began very, very small. In just a couple of years, they have become a worldwide organization with a vast network of European students, of students across the entire continent of Africa. They're all over the former Soviet bloc countries. They're just about everywhere. So again, if you're a student or if you're faculty, Listening from pretty much anywhere in the world, check out Students for Liberty. They want to know that you're out there and they want to connect with you. Oh, that's a fantastic marketing campaign that you just did there. All I the, do my best. Off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might ask, okay, toward the end there, I said, you have, um, you have a PhD in English. Yes. Okay. Why would I invite you onto the podcast, an economics podcast? You know, I, I can only answer that, I suppose, and I, I think you can back up my claim, and it's based on your introduction. I, you've written articles for the Liberty Fund, and or you're a senior fellow at the Liberty Fund, and you have journal articles with the economic behavior, and a lot of your writing, I suppose, transcends a lot of the thinking that we do in economics, and you put it out there on a different platform, which makes it, to me, very interesting. I stay with reading the article and it, dra- it draws me in and I can see concepts in economics played out in a very poetic and in a, a well-written way. And that's Thank very you. interesting for me to, to see that play out uh, from somebody like yourself who has an English background in writing, but also a deep interest in economics. Thanks. Yeah, I actually never took economics at all okay. as an undergraduate or in graduate school, certainly, because you you know dive into your own discipline. Um, but when I began working at Liberty Fund, I suddenly was spending an awful lot of time drinking with an awful lot of economists, which is a really good way to learn economics for those of you who are just learning it. And And what I started doing was I'd be at a cocktail hour and I'd grab a drink and for me in one hand and a drink for an economist in the other hand and would walk up to the economist and say, so I don't know anything about what you do. Tell me what you think is the most important basic economic principle Mm. that somebody who doesn't know anything ought to know about. Economists are always happy to talk to you if you've got a drink for them. Um, (laughs) It's weird how that works. Um, Incentives, right? (laughs) And so this was a way that I started to learn a lot about economics. It connected up with a lot of things that I had already noticed in literature that I was reading. But when I would talk to economists about literature, a lot of them either hadn't read the the works that I was interested in talking about, or they would have a tendency to dismiss out of hand 
the idea that literature could have anything valuable to contribute to economic thinking. Um, and I think that's because there's a perception, particularly among free market economists, that literature tends to be very, very lefty, very, very Marxist, mm. very anti-market. And so I spend a lot of time jumping up and down and waving my arms about like a madwoman to tell people that there's stuff that they need to read that's over here, right? And there's pro-market stuff over here in my department as well, and they're, they're looking at all the wrong things. Um, um, I, at the moment, I'm reading, and I'm sure you're well aware of the book by Sinzer on writing well. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. And I just finished a chapter there, and it just resonated with what you had just mentioned. You spoke to these economists and asked them what you felt were the basic questions that you wanted to find out what economics is, and then you moved on from that. And Sinzer wrote the same way. He wrote a book on baseball, and he wrote a couple of articles on birds interviewing a well-renowned bird watcher, bird collector, and painter. I forget Peterson, I think his name was. And he had nothing, no idea of about the type of work that this person did, but he was approached to write an article on it. So he, and his suggestion is, find out, ask the basic questions and build up on that because more than likely that's what your audience will be looking for. And right. you just said it there and you obviously built up a, a keen interest in economics and you were able to then, if you want a better word, I don't know, translate that in a way that reached out to your audience and drew them into the economics discipline through the medium or through the lens of literature. So that's, that's that's been the goal and to hope that it will really go both ways. Right. To also draw economists into yeah. looking at literature and give them places where they can find the material that they're looking for, material that they don't even think exists. Right. Because I yeah. think it's very important to get those two halves of the curriculum talking to each other. Yes. And you we know, belong we to humanities as well. Yes. Yes. So why not? I know one appears more scientific the way the discipline has moved on, but I think it's nice to be dragged back to the the roots of economics and looking at the coal face, if you want to say that, by relating it to something like Dickens's Hard Times. Right. Is it Dickens wrote Hard yeah. Times? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, it kind of brings back to that era um, and how capitalism and shown inequality and poverty and what people went through. And we can resonate with that as well again in, uh, in the 21st century, but at a, a you know, different, different level. But it's nice to see that and being brought back to that when you, when you can bring us back to that era. Right. And, you know, Adam Smith says that, that humans have a natural propensity to truck, barter and exchange, right? So economic activity, is as natural to us as breathing. It's a, a natural human enterprise, right? A natural human action, right? And from the very beginnings of human history, the same is true of storytelling yeah. and of creating song and of creating poetry, mm -hmm. right? And so there's similar expressions of what it means to be a human being moving through the world and a human being making choices in the world, right? So there's no reason to think of them as being entirely distinct from one another and as, as having nothing to say to one another. Yeah. Right. There's, there's a lot of room for communication there. And as well as that, you're referring to the present there about our communication with one another, whether it's the two disciplines that may have been disjointed, but 
you know, hopefully brought back through the medium of literature and the arts. But even from a time perspective, you again, you refer to Adam Smith and whatever the whoever the equivalent is today, that economist, human behavior really in its essential fundamental form, we don't change. I don't think so anyway. I know we have different external stimuli that alters our behavior, maybe in the short term. And that short term could be um, years, decades or whatever, but it's still a very, very slight time point in human history. But we fundamentally are and remain the same in terms of how, say, anthropologists might suggest that we have a fight or flight, for example. They tend to use that to build in our kind of defense mechanisms. And we always go back to that uh, Stone Age person, you know, so looking at literature even going back to Shakespeare, that does relate to what you know, we might wear. Obviously, we're wearing the same clothing, but we still have the same behaviors and attitudes, and we see capitalism in there. Absolutely. I mean, I did a, I, I had occasion recently to read a, a play, not a terribly good play, called Sir Thomas More, which is written by about five or six people during Shakespeare's time. One of those five or six people was Shakespeare. We know that. Um, and we're fairly confident about which bits of the play he wrote. And there's a long discussion in the middle of the play about how immigrants ought to be treated. Oh. Right. Yeah. And it is it is a discussion that feels as alive today as it did in the 16th century. Wow. Uh, maybe even more alive today. And, you know, Shakespeare has. The character Sir Thomas More argue with the people who are saying that immigrants all ought to be kicked out of town. He says, what do you get? Right. Imagine that we're able to do this. Right. Imagine that you can shove all these people out of your country and, mm. and watch them walking to the ports and get transported out. Imagine that you get to do whatever it is that you want with these people. Right. Mm. What do you get from that? All you've done is proven that insolence and strong hand should prevail. Right. Yeah. And he says, and if you get that, understand none of you guys are going to live to be old men because other strong hands will come along behind you and treat you in the same way. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, that is a political lesson and a moral lesson and an economic lesson that goes directly from Shakespeare to this week. You know, and that's why I love what I do. Right. That, yeah. that ability to time travel. That that's way. it yeah yeah that's and that's usually one of the questions i ask and i'll actually pick up on that and I, I can't wait to hear your answer to it when i ask you about my time travel question but i definitely won't forget that one anyway that question when i ask when it comes to yeah. it when you first went to these meetings with the economists and asked them those questions what was your first piece of writing based on do you recall wow um, a really early piece that I did was a general argument that these two disciplines of economics and literature need to learn to talk to one another. And it's called something like I'm looking for. It's called Reading Each Other. Um, and that appeared in the Freeman. Nice. And I'll, it, I'll send you a link if you have somewhere you can post it yeah. when the podcast goes up. 
It's actually something that I was invited to write by the Indiana Humanities Council to present to their board of directors. Um, and then I sent it to the Freeman to see if they wanted, they wanted it as a thing to talk about. It's, it's primarily about the humanities as a way to practice the kind of sympathy that Adam Smith talks about in theory of moral sentiments. So it's not as strongly economically inclined as later work, but it's certainly an argument for folks who are more from the economic side to pay serious attention to the humanities. And what were your, um, say, your reasons for us to, or the people from the economists to look at the humanities side of the discipline? Well, because if you think that what Adam Smith has to say about the importance of sympathy for understanding one another, for providing the sort of trust that allows a free market to function. And here I'm borrowing a little bit from Deirdre McCluskey's work. We talked about her a little bit before we before we started the episode. Right. Deirdre talks a lot about the importance of trust and of civil exchange underlying a functioning market society. Right. And if we think that the kind of sympathy that Adam Smith talks about that allows you to as much as possible stand in the shoes of another person and see the world from their perspective, if you think that that's an important part of the kind of trust that you need for market society and the kind of trust that a market society helps to develop. Yeah. Right. The humanities become sort of a lab where you can practice that right on fictional people by reading and rereading by understanding a poem one way when you're 15 and another way when you're 30 mm -hmm. and another way when you're 45. Right. Yeah. Or by listening to the way that writers write about having their um, experience, having their uh, understandings changed. There's a poem I want to look up for you. It's called These Winter Sundays. Um, see, this is what happens when you invite somebody to come talk about literature. So <laughs> so this is a poem by Robert Hayden called These Winter Sundays. Right? And he writes about. His father, with whom he didn't necessarily get along well, getting up early every single morning, even on Sundays, the only days he didn't have to get up and go to work to light the stove and heat the house and warm the family. So Hayden says, Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know? of love's austere and lonely offices. Right, so you have an adult poet looking back on his childish understanding or misunderstanding and ingratitude to his father, right? And talking about that change and, and the way that he developed sympathy and understanding for his father over the years. And that sort of an ability to learn to stand in someone else's shoes, to take their point of view, to think about what the other person needs and wants that might be very different from what you need and want. 
is not only a good moral thing for a person to do, but it actually is what lets us exchange in the marketplace, right? If I can't imagine what you need and want, I can't offer it to sell it to you. Mm. I'll never have anything that you want to buy, right? If I can't understand where you're standing. And so you can use poetry, you can use drama, you can use novels to practice that, mm. right? And to develop that kind of sympathy. So that was the argument from that that early work. And then you, you looked at likes of Shakespeare. Yes. And that is, firstly, it's very, for personally, I think, I, I only read Shakespeare because I had to. I didn't read it because of something that I wanted to. And maybe at an age where I am at now, it's kind of starting to draw my attention to these works, especially when someone like Sinzer has uh, pointed it out in his book on writing well. And the liter the type of writing that Shakespeare used is intentional to try and make it somewhat flow seamlessly from one sonnet to another, one word to another, whatever it might be. So it's very difficult to crack that or interpret Shakespeare for any learned person or anybody. Um, but to relate it to something other, something else that's equally or perhaps just as difficult, which is economics and the concepts. And how do you intertwine the two of those? Or what do you see as an example of classic economics being played out in a Shakespearean play? Oh, how long have you got? Oh, stop. <laughs> we, can, we can do another episode on this if you wanted right. to. Um, first of all, there's, there's one very obvious and very immediate connection, which is that we are quite confident that Adam Smith, who you will remember taught Shakespeare, and lectured on Shakespeare. Okay. Adam Smith got the phrase the invisible hand from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Okay. Right. So hang on, so, I'm writing all this down. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Mind-blowing, right? Um, so there's a there's an immediate connection there. So I've done a little bit of writing in and some lecturing on connections between Adam Smith and Macbeth and what it means to borrow the bloody and invisible hand from Macbeth um, and turn it into the invisible hand of the marketplace. So that was, that was an initial connection. But the, the longer work that I have been doing on Shakespeare is actually not so much with the drama as it is with the sonnets. And this sprang, as, as a lot of my work does, from arguing with economists. When I'm not drinking with them, I'm arguing with them. <laughs> Um, I'm married to one. So, you know, that's okay. that, that's just what happens, right? <laughs> you drink, you argue, you drink, you argue. So it sprang from an argument with one of the economists to whom I'm not married about whether there was any possibility for a positive understanding of profit before Adam Smith and the 18th century, Okay, really. Right. And the argument that a lot of people make and you hear it not only from economists, but also from literary scholars, is that prior to the 18th or 19th century, you basically have a non market oriented society where people are extremely distrustful of market processes. They're extremely distrustful of trade and exchange and merchants and uh, lending money for interest. At this point, they always bring up Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, That's it, which, yeah. of course, is a play that is vastly suspicious of lending money for interest. 
And we are meant to take from that play and from these suspicions that it was essentially impossible in the 16th, 17th century and earlier to have a positive view of lending money for interest. As is so often the case in the work that I'm doing lately, this makes me jump up and down and say, but you just haven't read all of the things yet, right? Yes, if you only read Merchant of Venice, you're going to believe that Shakespeare is strongly opposed to lending money at interest. Shakespeare is a good, you know, reasonable indicator of what the 17th century, 16th, 17th century is thinking about mm. in a lot of ways. So you could, you know, conceivably make an argument based only on Merchant of Venice that that's just true. The problem is that Shakespeare and people in the 17th century wrote a whole lot more stuff than just the Merchant of Venice, right? You're not going to take the standard 17th century view of marriage from Othello or Macbeth, right? That's probably a bad idea. Those are worst case scenarios of what married life can look like, right? You probably don't want to take the standard 16th or 17th century view of the marketplace from Merchant of Venice, which is a worst case scenario of what a marketplace can look like, right? So let me know if I'm going on too long. No, no, no. So in Shakespeare's sonnets, something very interesting happens. Right. So the the sonnets are primarily love poems, a lot of which are seduction poems. So an argument that Shakespeare makes in several of the earliest sonnets in the sequence of, of sonnets goes like this. You, the person to whom I'm writing, are very beautiful. You have been given a gift from nature, an investment from nature, a fortune from nature that is your beauty and your general awesomeness. If you do not have sex with me and make babies with me, you are wasting that fortune and not investing it and making a profit from it. Right? So what happens in these seduction sonnets, right? What happens in these love sonnets is that Sex and reproduction and making babies is analogized to profiting on a financial fortune, right? And the word profit is used over and over and over again. And it is put in monetary terms over and over and over again, where profit and investment and gaining wealth for yourself and future generations is a positive thing, the most positive thing that in the sort of Reformation Protestant context of yay babies, you can possibly have, right? Children, future children. And to me, that's a very strong argument that there's a possibility for thinking about investment and profit and gaining interest on an investment as a positive thing. And you don't just find it in Shakespeare, right? You find it in Marlowe. You find it in Carrie. You find it in other Elizabethan sonneteers whose names I'm not going to drop because they're, they're less well known, but you find it over and over again in the period. This poetic representation of profit and investment and lending money at interest, getting interest on a loan as a positive thing. And would this, I, I don't mean to cut across, you know, but would you see something similar in the works of Jane Austen? I know I read Emma because I had to do it for English at the same time. I had to study The Merchant of Venice and Hard Times. 
And I think in one of her books, I think it's Emma, where she was more of a matchmaker and she'd like to intervene with and trying to match people up. And that was her, seen as her role. And I can't recall, but it's just when you were saying that there was a, a profit motive in terms of getting people, not profit motive, but there's a, a motive in terms of getting people together so that they could procreate and live ha- happily ever after. I'm not sure if it came true in that book, but perhaps uh, in in a way it could be read between the lines that that was an essential part of not becoming a spinster, which I don't know if Emma ended up being one or was Jane Austen herself one. Yeah, so so Emma's one of my favorite Austins, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Okay. I've written a little bit on that one as nice. well. Okay. Um, first of all, the, the goal, of course, for all of Austin's heroines is a happy marriage, uh, a marriage that produces children, a marriage that carries on into future generations. And one of the great fears kind of running in the background of the novel, Emma, is the fear of what it is like to be an impoverished spinster. Emma is extremely wealthy and doesn't have to worry about it. But at one point in the book, Mr. Knightley, who is her, she eventually marries at the end of the novel, points out to her that because of her wealth, she's in a very different position from one of the impoverished spinsters in the book. He says, you know, you don't, you don't understand. You have wealth, you have power, you have beauty, you have fortune, you have social status. You have everything that she doesn't have. She has nothing and she's never going to have anything because in this world, there is no way for her to get that except through marriage, right, to someone who is suitable and who is wealthy. The funny thing, though, about Emma's matchmaking is she's terrible at it. None of the matches that she tries to make work out. They all they all collapse. They all go just dreadfully in the end. Um, and so the argument that I made when I wrote about Emma is that she's actually a really good example of the problems of trying to plan other people's choices for them. Right. So she's a great uh, literary example of the problems of centralized planning right? <laughs> and why centralized planning doesn't work. Right. So she's she's very Hayekian in that way. Yeah. Right. Um, or at least Austin is very Hayekian in that way, right? You can't, you can't plan other people's lives for them because you don't know the circumstances of their particular time and their particular place and the particular choices that they want to make. Mm-hmm. And when Emma tries to do that, it just goes hideously wrong, right? So it's a, it's an absolutely beautiful example of that kind of argument made in a literary manner. Right. So it'd be a lot of fun to read Austin's Emma alongside Hayek's use of knowledge in society, yeah, for example. That right? would be actually very interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, however, perhaps it's unfortunate, but it, it's nice to have that escapism as well, especially as a, a child or an adult who might want to relive some childhood uh, movies. But a depiction of something like Cinderella. That also tends to resonate with Jane Austen's work and uh, on Emma and also maybe some other historical, the historical context that some of this work is based on. That you need this man in shining armor or a white knight on his horse to pick up someone that's impoverished and is freer from a life of misery, poverty and being a, a single person. Right. How do you or do you have any opinion on that or is it just we have to 
can't go beyond the surface of that and just enjoy the movie as it's set out to uh, to uh, to do you know which is to entertain us in music and color and uh, an escapism of a fairy tale well fairy tales are I think fairy tales are really economically interesting because they seem very anti-economic. You have these magical items, right? You've got the the great fairy tale item of the magical purse that never runs out of money, right? Or the magical tablecloth you can spread out on the table and a meal just appears in front of you, right? And it works sort of like people think socialism is going to work, right? Stuff just comes out of nowhere, right? We all We all have lots and lots of stuff. But when... You dig a little harder and look into a wider range of fairy tales. There's all of those wonderful fairy tales about that third son. Mm. You know, there's a whole, there's always, you know, my sons, I'm dying. You will have to go off and seek your fortune. And the first son goes off and, you know, he fails. And the second son goes off and he fails. And then that third son goes out. And through a combination often of ingenuity and dumb luck, or dumb luck that turns out to have been ingenuity in the long run, he manages to succeed. So there's a certain, there's a certain strain of fairy tale that does praise a kind of initiative and a kind of experimentalism and an entrepreneurship. Um, There are fewer of those about women, probably because of the times in which the tales were written. But there, it's a non-zero number, if I can talk for, like an economist for a second. There's a great um, Irish tale about a heroine named Molly Wuppel. Molly Wuppel. Or Molly Wuppy. Do you know this one? No, no, I don't. No, you no. got to look her up. Molly um, Wuppy. And Yeah, and so she, it's something, she has to defeat an ogre, right? And mm-hmm. and does it through a, a range of brave tasks and, and clever avoidances of, of misfortune and, and succeeds and defeats the ogre and all comes well. And then you have a great fairy tale called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, where the young woman gets married and her husband is sort of stolen from her and she has to go through a set of heroic tasks to find him and to reach her happy ending. So we may want to place more blame on the Disney of the 1950s and 60s for focusing on fairy tales that were more about being rescued by a prince and less about princesses rescuing their own darn selves. And I think, you know, they've changed that recently. Brave, I think, is a good example of a a tale that has changed that. My daughters love that one. And they did a nice revision of the, the princess and the frog that has a lot of sort of feminine agency and, and initiative in it that I think was a, an enjoyable reworking. And I suppose a lot of these have biblical references as well. And we even see some recent movies like, or sorry, I should say books that have been turned into movies like Lord of the Rings that have been based on Norse mythology. Uh, Neil Gaiman's one is another example yes. where the you probably know the author who has this poem. It's a very long poem about dwarves and elves and that type of thing which the lord of the rings is based on but there's very little reference to females i suppose and i I, maybe i don't want to go down this rabbit hole maybe you don't want to either but like that in the century that we're living in today they're actually bringing that around so you made reference to brave and highlighting the role of women in society that we don't have to have those economic means to depend on somebody else for. And it's okay also for men to sit back and not feel the pressures of being the breadwinner or feel the pressures of staying at home as a father. 
which yeah. un- unfortunately was the case up to recently. And again, you could go on and see how that might affect people's mental health by, by not living up to the stigma that society has placed on people that they should they should behave or be a type of person or fit into a particular role. Right. And so one of the time periods where I think fiction gets super interesting for these questions, and particularly for precisely these questions within an economic context, is fiction written by and for women between the two world wars. Okay. So you have, so immediately prior to World War I, you have Edna Ferber's stories about a traveling saleswoman named Emma McChaney. Right. So these short stories are being written between about 1911 and 1913 in the U.S. And Emma McChaney is a traveling saleswoman. She is a divorced mother. Mm. And in order to send her son to a good boarding school so that he can grow up to be an educated man and, uh, you know, a, a good man with the kind of education that she wants to provide him, she works for a living and she works full time and she travels. And this is 1911. Short stories about a divorced working woman who travels for a living. I'm sure I people who picked up that now would be almost have to read it in privacy because I couldn't believe yeah. it when I found it. Yeah, um, I couldn't believe it when I found it. And the stories are full of events and discussions that really chime with working women today. Yeah. So, you know, she travels, she misses her son desperately. She often has these moments where, you know, she's worked all day and she's stuck in some stupid hotel that's like not very nice and the food's not very great. She gets hit on in the hotel bar. And so she's stuck up in her room all by herself. And she's thinking, all I want to do really is be at home and I'd like to just roast a chicken and make a pie, for God's sake, and see my kid. That's what I'd really like to do. And then the next morning, she'll be eating her breakfast thinking, I just ought to quit and I ought to go home and I ought to be done with it. And she'll run into a business competitor. Okay. Right. And then in the wink of an eye, she thinks, but I love this job and I got to beat this guy <laughs> to the next sale. And doing this job lets me have the home that I have and lets my son be at the school where he is and lets me be the full and complete person that I am, right? And I love that the stories don't lie about how hard that combination of desires is and how ever-present that combination of desires is. But they also don't lie about the joy and the fulfillment of doing work that you love and that you're really good at, right? And so that's amazing. And it's not just Edna Ferber, right? There's a great novel called High Wages by Dorothy Whipple that's written in the 19-teens sometime about a shop girl in England who, who begins, you know, working behind the counter at a dress shop for next to nothing, sleeping above the shop, and ends up running her own uh, dress shop and designing her own fashions. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's fantasy novel for the bourgeois uh, shop girl, right, to read and to, to imagine that her life can be like this. And there's a novel by Dorothy Canfield Fisher called The Homemaker, which is about a husband who's miserable at his job and a wife who's miserable working at home and taking care of the house. He gets injured and can't work outside the home anymore. She begins to work outside the home. 
he starts to stay stay home and take care of the children, and they discover they're better suited in those areas. What year right? was that? And in those roles. Do you recall? I came across both High Wages and The Homemaker through a great English press called Persephone Books that publishes primarily women's fiction from from between the world wars. Okay. A lot of which is enormously economically interested because it's a time period when more and more women are working outside the home because the men are away from war. Yeah. Right? And these issues are becoming increasingly present in their life and increasingly something that women want to do and are talking about wanting to do. And I buy from them all of the time and it's it's fascinating material that I wouldn't know about otherwise. You have, I'm sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have an article that you wrote up called Didactic Fiction. Would that be yes. right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah so, something like that. Some problems in didactic fiction or something like that, yeah. What I'd like to maybe for you to, because there might be people at the moment listening, thinking, okay, where are we going with this? Obviously, we're bringing in economic themes. We're bringing in something that's uh, related to the household or individuals and how they thrive Based on what they love or what they're passionate about, or you know, be it as a homemaker or as a someone who's running their own business, and people can relate to those successes where somebody has worked from the bottom all the way up and became this, you know, from someone who's a dressmaker coming becoming a very well known fashion designer. In one of your books that you mentioned, their high wages, I think it was, even though they're fiction. By reading these, they do relate to, and we can learn from them related to economics, or even if it's in a way accidental, like maybe the the grapes of Rosh or something like that by Steinbeck, yeah. where we can actually see economics being played out at a local level or um, for the whole economy for America in that particular time. But for those people who might be wondering where are we going with this and how is it that we're talking about fiction related to economics... Yeah. Just as a reminder, recently I spoke to uh, the Nobel laureate, uh, Professor Eugene Fama, and just, you know, going by a quote on by him who said about economics or scientific theories that they have anomalies, otherwise they're not theories, they're reality. And that's the name of the game with economics as well. The theories out there are criticized by other people who do not support them because they don't reflect reality, but we have to come from them to theorize what the model would look like, despite perhaps some failings within them. That gives allows us to have a sense of how the economy could work or, you know, based on a number of variables or it allows right. us to test certain things. And it's the same with fiction. It gives us that other insight into how the economy works or how whatever part of the economy, micro or macro, how it works from a human story and how the human through the author's eyes or from a third person or in first person how they view what's going on around them and they can we can get a sense through the the language that's being used how it might have been for that person's experience through hardship or through um, disappointment or single being a single parent with a a young Mm -hmm. kid and I, I think it's very important to immerse yourself in fiction rather than nonfiction to give us that escapism, but staying true to economics is that's where you you want to remain. Yeah, I think. Right. So I get the question, you know, why? Why the heck are you doing what you're doing and why the heck should anybody care? 
fairly often. And, you know, it's a it's a reasonable question. Right. Because I'm not Lord knows I'm not doing anything that's remotely close to traditional economics. And I would would never, ever, ever uh, call myself an economist at all. I have no no claim to that uh, proud title and, and wouldn't uh, wouldn't even try to say that I should have. But by paying so much attention to economics, I'm not necessarily doing traditional literary criticism either. So I get the question from from both directions, right? What the heck are you doing and why should we care? Right. So what I tend to say to economists is, first of all, a version of what you have said, which the economist Tyler Cowen, who I expect you've probably interviewed. uh, If you haven't yet, I'm sure you will uh, soon. Tyler wrote a great paper called The Novel as a Model. Right. Talking about the way that novels can serve as models of different kind of economic systems and different ways of thinking through economic problems. And that is one way for economists to think about novels. Another way for them to think about novels, though, is not that novels or literature can tell you what was actually happening in economics at the time when they were written or during the time that they're writing about, right? But that they can tell you what people thought was happening. So Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath is not an accurate representation of what was happening economically in America during the crash and the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. But it's a fairly accurate representation of what a whole lot of America thought was happening Mm. in that period. And that's really, really important. As the the discipline of history of economic thought has sort of uh, fallen away from being something that's studied as much, I think that we have lost track of the importance of remembering that it matters what people think is happening as much as it matters what is actually happening. And literature is a great doorway into getting a handle on what it is that people think about economics. Because unless you know what they think is true, you don't have a good way to explain to them or argue with them about what's actually true, right? If if you don't know where the misunderstanding is, it's hard to create understanding. I I pretty much guarantee that if I spoke to all my guests who have featured on the show, they would all agree that looking at literature is a very important way of connecting with economic theory. Right. And definitely Deirdre McCloskey had spoke about it and she encourages uh, some of these books as part of her reading list for uh, eco- students of hers. Yes, yeah, she has been, Deirdre has been vital for making this argument and for, for bringing it to prominence. And, and to a large extent, what I really do with my work is kind of deep dive in a lot of the areas that, that Deirdre sort of touches on. And that's what you do. Yeah. You, you take a, you take a subject or even a, you take a subject in economics. And this is what we as economists encourage students to do when they're looking at research. You take a subject and you keep on narrowing it down and you're trying to get into a kind of a niche area. And that's what you do with some of your articles that you write, for example, the science fiction of, um, scarcity i think and you also you have the victorian economic sensibility is one Mm -hmm. and you also take a a very novel approach through your work on dr seuss how the grinch stole the free market (laughs) and again (laughs) very nice to read and again that poetic uh, reading of for those of people who like dr or dr seuss 
it's a great way to connect to economics, whether you're an economist or not, through that type of medium. Right. And so for people who are not economists, right, when if economists want to talk to them about economics, I think one of the big barriers is the tendency of many economists to approach the subject through econometrics, through data and graphs and equations and, and the rest of it, rather than trying to teach people the economic way of thinking, mm. right? And to explain basic economic principles without getting into the math of it. You can explain incentives to people through love poetry yeah. without having to get into graphs and equations and the rest of it, right? There's a, a Christopher Marlowe love poetry, love poem that, that begins, come live with me and be my love and we will all the pleasures prove and goes on to list all of the fabulous things that we will do and have and be if you will just come live with me. That's incentives. Yeah. That's how they work, right? And if you were to graph that, if an economist was to graph that, they would have a linear relationship between... <laughs> And we know marriage or relationships have their ups and downs and they're not very right. linear, you know, they're non-linear in over time. So um, an economist can map out perhaps what the trend might be up or down, but the reality is, uh, and po the poetry like that would capture more so the the highs and lows and the highs again, perhaps, of a relationship over time. Well, and... And and also, we you know, we just speak different languages, yeah. right? And if economists want to talk to economists, they should absolutely use um, all of the economic tools that are at their disposal. They should, you know, use data slides and charts and graphs mm -hmm. and equations all you want, mm -hmm. all that is necessary, please. And when I speak to other English professors, I should go on and on about variants and King Lear and Zizigy and Sigma and, and uh, you know, metonymy and all of the rest of it, right? But if we want to talk to each other, right, if we want to say, hey, this is the stuff that I've got that I think is neat and that I think you guys ought to listen to. And if economists want to talk to colleagues in the English department or in the history department or in the whatever department, right, mm -hmm. They need to find other languages to do that yeah. because very often, otherwise, the, the barrier of jargon and the barrier of econometrics and the barrier of math and graphs and charts is, is intimidatingly high um, in the same way that the barrier of English professor jargon is intimidatingly high for people outside that discipline, right? It's just a good idea to say, you know, what's, what's really the core of what I want to communicate here and how can I do that? In, in the best possible way to make that happen, right? And again, other economists that I have spoken to, one recently, Brian O'Rourke, and he has found his, what we say in Ireland, his grawl or his love of economics through superheroes. And yes. He, he explains economic concepts like uh, incentives and, oh, there, I, I, I'm, pic I'm picturing the fictitious. I'm picturing Deadpool and all that, and I can't even think of the. That, that, that's how powerful it is, you know. I can't even think of the yeah. economic concept, but opportunity costs and all that. So he's looking at Deadpool, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, and what they can bring in terms of their abilities and their superpowers, and he's able to draw out 
and relate concepts, economic concepts to them. And he's presented yes. at conferences. He uses it as part of his teaching. He's wrote economics papers on it. And again, I, what was I? It was something that you were saying there, the, how we can actually communicate through a medium. So I told him once somebody from Comic Con finds out about this, I'm sure they'll ask or they'll invite him along yeah. to talk. It's a pretty much a nerd fest for people who love yeah. comics. And oh, you will familiar. have economists <laughs> that are nerds in their own right who have a their, an outlet like comics or superheroes or whatever yeah. it might be, and they will really gravitate towards somebody like that. And you can communicate to economists and non-economists through that same identifiable, interested medium that they all share. Absolutely. And I, th- I, I want to be clear. I include when I'm t- when I say literature, I include comic books and I include rock music and I include just about anything that you can think of within that category. I'm a huge fan of pop culture. And I find economists lately in particular be, to be enormously creative and entrepreneurial, unsurprisingly, perhaps, and willing to experiment with ways to convey economic principles to their classes mm-hmm. um, and, and to general readership. The economist Steve Horwitz and I have an article on. Yeah, that's my husband. Oh no! Uh, way. And I have. A, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I no, didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Oh my god! Um, I interviewed Steve. <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of a sweetie. <laughs> I didn't know this. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't know my homework. No, 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 no. I've only been married for just under a year, yeah. so you're 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 excusably behind. Anyway, well, Steve I and I have an article. <laughs> I, shocking, isn't it? Um, Steve and I have an article in a book called The Economics of the Undead, which was edited by Glenn Whitman and James Dow. And the article is on zombies and the, the broken window fallacy. Right? That's right my next topic to talk about. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, does the, does the broken window fallacy still applies during a zombie apocalypse? Yeah. Right. And that book is a great teaching tool. And my friend Art Carden did a big book called Homer Economicus, yeah. which is about the economics of the Simpsons. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who do rock video contests mm-hmm. with their students every year. Um, and Cecil Bohannon. And- yes. And Cecil Bohannon from Ball State does a short film contest yeah. with his economic students. And it's there's just this real willingness and desire to get students to experiment with ways to convey economics. And I see my work as part of that. And I see my comparative advantage in my approach is that I happen to have read all of the stuff. I mean, I spent, you know, I've spent 47 years reading all the stuff that economists don't read. So I, you know, I jump around a lot and tell people I read this thing and it has cool stuff in it and maybe they want to look at it. That's really what I do. And then I hope that sometimes what happens is that people who are in English departments and from that side of, of the field are reading what what I've written and are thinking, oh, that's it's I, I had not thought about the economic content of it in in those terms. Maybe there is something to this free market stuff after all. It's just as you mentioned, so. Steve Horvitz, I had him on my mind. I was going to bring up something there, and I just couldn't believe you mentioned him. And then you said you were married to him because when we were talking about movies and that, all the way back to episode number six, which was on the twentieth November two thousand and fourteen, I interviewed Andrew Heaton, and I don't know if you know Andrew Heaton. I know yeah, yeah, he he used to have a at the time it was a fantastic podcast, Econ Pop with Steve Horvitz. Yeah. 
And that's how I was introduced to Steve. And I said, I must get Steve on the show. And it took a while to get him on the show. But once I asked him, he was all on for it. And I actually have him on my website uh, at the on the banner. And he has a pair of headphones. And, you know, he, we, we talked about... <laughs> oh, I know that picture. Yeah, we talked about what was the band Rush. I think it was Rush. Yes. He's a fan of Rush, isn't he? And we talked about the economics of music and how economics came through some of the... the the music that Rush wrote about, and I think he said the drummer was a, uh, a libertarian. Yeah. Uh, I'd say, I say, I guess that's how you met then, yeah, <laughs> being libertarian. But yeah, I mean, we met because he was doing some work for Liberty Fund, and I was working at Liberty Fund, and we've, you know, we've known each other for more than a decade now, and been friends yeah. for a very long time. Fantastic. Uh, before we were married, when we first really seriously started to work together, was unsurprisingly, I was doing a paper on the overlap between literature and economics. And I was looking at now here's where you're going to have to put the explicit rating on the podcast. I was looking at two early modern poems about coinage crises that were not just about uh, coinage crises, but were also pornographic poems about coinage crises. And I reached the point in my work on the poems where I was like, I get that there's a joke here. I get that that there are economic jokes being made. And I know enough economics to know that there's a joke, but I don't know enough economics to really get the joke. I got to find an economist. <laughs> right. And Steve and I had done a conference uh, together at Liberty Fund, you know, a year or two ago. And I thought, he was nice and had a good sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call him up. And so I called up Steve and I said, so here's the thing. Would you be willing to read two pornographic poems about <laughs> coinage crises and explain the economics? And Steve went, porn, money, I'm in, <laughs> right? And so, so we wrote a paper called Lady Pecunia at the Punching Office, which is published and out there. And uh, that's about these these two poems that make uh, pornographic jokes about Elizabethan coinage crises. Because mm. um, that's how deep the geekery goes in our house. I think <laughs> um, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, that's that's how we started. That's really the first thing that we worked on together. We've done a bunch of work since then. Well, are you able to uh, hang on for another few minutes or five, ten minutes maybe? Or are you tight for time? Yeah, um, I do have to go in a, in 15, oh, absolutely, be, but, but yeah, I have a couple. Yeah, can I ask a couple of quick fire questions then? Yes, absolutely. I said earlier on um, when you talked about time travel that there's one question I'd love to ask you, and it would be this. If you were to step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you go back to? Who would you like to meet? And what do you think the conversation, what would you like to ask them? Am I going to visit or do I have to stay? Well, you can visit or you can reverse, get them over here this this era, you know, the 21st century, whichever way you want to go. If you want to stay, you can stay. Oh, I definitely don't want to stay because we have penicillin and fluoride and uh, um, much better food. Um, so I will I will cheerfully stay in the 21st century or, or travel further into the future. Thank you very much. But if I was going back to visit... Oh, that's difficult. Um, I would definitely want to hang with uh, John Donne and with Shakespeare just for a little bit. I got some questions, mm. um, especially I want to know where Shakespeare left the manuscript so we could dig this up. That would be nice. 
I would like to have tea with Jane Austen because I think that she would talk some great smack. I think that she would be very funny and very sharp. I'm not sure I'd be smart enough to keep up with her, but it'd be a hell of a lot of fun to try. So those would probably be the first places I would go and the first couple of things I would do. What's a good book that you're reading at the moment? Or do you have uh, any book that you would like to recommend to those of us who might not look at fiction or literature, whatever, in whatever type of genre that we should open our minds and pick up a book and read it? Pretty much anything I've already mentioned during the podcast, especially those Edna Ferber short stories about Emma McChaney. Um, but the one that I run around and jump up and down about and talk about all of the time is a book called Red Plenty by Francis Spufford, which came out 2010, maybe-ish, right around there. This is a book that is about one-third history, one-third economics, and one-third fiction. It's set in the Soviet Union from about the 1930s to the death of Khrushchev. And what it does that is so astonishing to me, right? So if you've read Mises 1920, and if you've read, uh, you know, almost anybody's work, Hayek's work, Mises' work on calculation debate, right, and on Soviet economics, it is very easy sitting in the 21st century to look back at that time period and think Hayek and Mises explained this so well. Anyone who fell for this must have been stupid or ill-intentioned from the outset, right? There is no way that anyone intelligent could have thought this could work, and there's no way that anybody good-hearted could have been involved in this from the very beginning. It's just ridiculous on its face. So what Spufford does without, you know, being supportive of a planned economy, right, and without being a fan of the communists, what he does, what he's able to do is to imaginatively get in the heads of people who thought that the planned economy was the answer to poverty and was the answer to scarcity, and who were in it because they believed, really believed, that we had the available, we finally had the technology available to make a planned economy work, and that it would solve the tragedy of scarcity in human life. And he's so good at explaining that and then showing you how it completely falls apart almost as soon as it's put together right? And how it just never works. It's an amazing book. So Tom Palmer, whose work you might know, who works for works with Atlas and a variety of other organizations, it's a free market libertarian organizations. Tom Palmer, who's done a ton of work in former Soviet countries, says that it is the book that he would recommend that people read in order to understand that era and that part of the world. And friends of mine who grew up under Soviet control in Bulgaria or in Russia or in Poland say it's the best description that they've read of what things were like. So you should just all go read it right now. (laughs) Yeah, I have a personal interest in history, especially Russian history. It's something I I loved reading about, despite, you know, the the hardships and all that. They suffered the Bolshevik revolution and that type of thing, you know, 17. Um, One more question, actually, or it's not really a question, but... Yeah, it is really, actually. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I'd love to know how listeners of the episode 
would find you because you're I'm able to find you on a number of platforms. And if they want to find out more about you, read your work, where should you direct them to? Well, conveniently, if you spell my name properly, Sarah Squire is a unique Google identifier. So if you just Google Sarah Squire, you're only going to get me. And that's with an SK, not an SQ. Yes, that's S-K-W-I-R-E. And you will find me and it will just get you me. So that's that's fairly easy. Um, you can find a lot of my work archived at fee.org, F-E-E.org. You can find a lot of posts at the Bleeding Heart Libertarians blog. There's some work up at libertarians.org, uh, sorry, libertarianism.org. And then various things spread about the web. I am uh, chagrined to note that I do not have a website at this point. It becomes clear to me that I better get one pretty quick. Um, I'll see if my uh, stepson maybe will make me one. I will, I'll try to get one of those up in, in the near future, but those would be good sources, good places to, to find my work. So uh, another place then to find your work for those people who might want to go through my website is economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah Squire. And again, I'll put links to those websites and the fee website that you refer to so people can uh, go directly through there if you prefer to maybe use my website or something to yes to you go should through. yeah yeah so uh, and i'll put up all the links in the show notes all the resources and the books mentioned in, in this episode on economicrockstar.com forward slash sarah square sarah i really appreciate you taking time out i uh, loved talking to you i hope we get to talk again fairly soon about writing and the importance of writing in academia or, or, you know, in not only academia, but just in general, I suppose. And uh, I'd like to say that you are an economic rock star. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a blast and I'll come back anytime. Yeah, that's great. I think now this is the second or third married couple on this podcast. Imagine. Well, you know, if you really want, you should get the two of us on together sometime. I'd, I'd love that. Can... I actually would love that because Steve did say to me, um, I, I said this very same to Steve, I'd love to have him on the podcast again. And I took a hiatus for almost a, a year. Um, so I, he probably remembers um, saying that he'll come on and I'd love to it'd be great for you to come on together or separately as well, if that's the preference. We are we are at your command, whatever you'd like Fantastic. to do. But, um, it was it was a blast. It was great to talk to you. You're very easy to talk to, which is a real skill. So well, I, I'm very uh, well. That's a, a very nice thing to hear. But I, I think it actually helps because I said to you on the opening before the interview that I felt very relaxed talking to you. Great. And uh, the whole throughout the whole duration of this episode, I can't believe we're on a, an hour and sixteen minutes right now, including <laughs> the recording. It just flew by. Absolutely yeah. flew by. Yeah, it's been great. So listen, maybe um, maybe we'll get a chance to have a cup of tea in person one of these days. Most definitely. That'd be great. Most de- and I've been over into America and I spoke, spoke to some of the people that we actually mentioned in this episode already. So who knows, we might get to talk again in person. Yeah, and I get I get over to uh, to England fairly often, which puts me not that far from your neck of the woods. So maybe no, I'll get up there. You can get a cheap flight over to Ireland yeah. perhaps or I can do the other way around. Exactly. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Sarah. And give my regards to Steve. I will do that. Take care. Talk to you soon, Dan Sarah. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. See you, Dan.
Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoy this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.